Hello and welcome to a very special Novacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes to the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. Soon as he's back, we'll be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords, and we expect that to be in uh, late July or early August. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode, Lo. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, your podcast is one of the first ones I listened to uh, when I started listening to ASWAP podcast. So this is really, really fun for me. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Lo. Uh, some of you might know me as Loaded Links on Twitter. My pronouns are they, them. Uh, I also have a blog, loadedlinks.wordpress.com. And if some of you are currently trying to figure out what the heck my accent is, it's <laughs> Swedish. Uh, I'm born, raised, and live in Sweden. Uh, so yeah, that's me. So what we wanted to talk about today is the issue of gender in relation to a lot of the main characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. And this is something you've always, I think, written and spoke really eloquently about. And I think there's there's no one uh, I would, I would uh, rather have on for, um, to talk about this. But before we uh, get into the specifics, let's start with, with A Song of Ice and Fire. How did, how did you first come to A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, like a lot of people, I came for the show. Um, I started watching the show because you Everyone in my life, it seemed, were talking about it. <laughs> um, so I thought, what the heck? I've always liked fantasy. Uh, you know, I grew up reading Narnia, Harry Potter, Percy Jackson. And uh, yeah, then everyone was talking about this Game of Thrones show. So I figured, why not? Um, so I started watching Game of Thrones. And then between some f- seasons, I think three and four, I started looking online about theories and analysis and stuff, and uh, I came across a lot of YouTube stuff, YouTube videos, and people were talking about the books there as well. Uh, And I realized, oh, there's a lot more in the books. I should start reading those. Um, So yeah, I started reading books, and then after I finished those, I just felt like, well, I got to get into some of this analysis that people are doing. Uh, so I started listening to podcasts and getting into Twitteros and stuff. And uh, then that somehow led to me writing stuff of my own. And like you said, I I read a lot about gender. Uh, and that's really just because I have a bachelor's degree in sociology. And within a few weeks, I'll hopefully have a master's degree in gender studies. Uh, so it just came naturally to me to write about gender, sexuality, and stuff like race, class, disability, and other stuff. Well, congratulations so much uh, on the master's. That's so wonderful. And yeah, so coming to our, our topics for this episode, talking about uh, a gender and, and sexuality and a song of ice and fire, how would you... What's what's like your your overall kind of framework for talking about these topics in relationship uh, to the story? Well, I think that sometimes people, when you start talking about gender sexuality or something, people are like, "Oh, why do you gotta bring in bring in politics into fiction?" <laughs> but we're all affected, literal in literary stories and in real life, you're all affected by politics in some some way or another. And you've talked a lot about that on the podcast. 
you've also recently, I know, had Shiloh Carroll on, and she's talked a lot about how uh, Aeswath isn't that true to actual medieval times. Uh, so uh, when I approach uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, I do that considering that uh, George is a contemporary author writing from a contemporary perspective. So I do approach A Song of Ice and Fire from a sort of mixed medieval but mostly contemporary uh, perspective when it comes to gender and sexuality. Yeah, I had a great time talking with Shiloh about that that kind of two-pronged approach that is inherent, I think, to this kind of uh, discussion where you are you are talking about the past, but you are also you're just inherently talking about the the present day's perspective on the past, and that ends up being what you study just as much as the as the previous era itself. And that relationship, I think, yeah, it does provoke sometimes uh, hostile reactions, but. That's unfortunate in a lot of ways, but also just because everyone is engaged in that process, whether they want to consciously admit it or not. Like, that's what it means to read or watch a period piece. Like, you are, you're evaluating a distance, and you might be doing it uh, at a level that you're just very used to, but it's still a, a process you can kind of bring to the forefront and talk explicitly about. And yeah, I, I love talking with Shiloh about that stuff. Yeah, and like you talked about in that episode, we don't have, like actual true accounts of the past anyway. Right. We can't just teleport back to the medieval times and ask some random farmer hey, what is your view on sex and gender? <laughs> uh, we're reading like accounts of what people have said back then and those are filtered through both people's perceptions back then and then historians so we, we gotta we gotta stay critical <laughs> to our readings of the past we, whether it's like historical accounts or if it's fiction absolutely it's it's as Shala was saying it's it's just different kinds of inaccuracies that's that's what you're reckoning with so what are what are george r r martin's inaccuracies what what you know when again you're saying it without saying as Shiloh said you, you bring that up people say i hate the series but you know just a kind of an honest reflection what do you think are the the inaccuracies in in how uh, george portrays uh, sex and gender well there's Quite a lot, I would say, and I don't <laughs> think that's bad. Right, right. I think I think that's interesting, and I think it's his story, and he can do whatever he wants. Uh, but it's not accurate to the medieval times. So just like generally speaking, people throughout the world and throughout history have seen sex, gender, and sexuality in a lot of different ways. Uh, they've been understood in a lot of different ways. Uh, but if you look at the medieval age medieval times in Europe, sex slash gender was sort of understood in what you, people now call the one sex model. Like there was one sex, male, and then female was like the faulty version of the male sex. And that was very influenced by like ancient Greece and Greek philosophical ideas where men's bodies were seen as active, hot, strong, and women's were seen as uh, weak, passive, damp, cold, and just women's bodies were seen as not the full version of the men men's bodies, with female genitalia being thought as internal, much smaller versions of male genitalia. So sex slash gender was more seen as more fluid and not like a biological fact at this point in history. So people thought that a body could be feminized if you lost heat, for instance. So sex wasn't something stable or static. 
And it wasn't until the 18th century that this view started being replaced with the sort of 2-6 model uh, that's still used today in many ways. And then male and female bodies were seen as fundamentally biologically different uh, instead of part of this hierarchical continuum. And I would argue that the way sex and gender is presented in ASWAF is much more closer to the modern view, where people see it as like a biological fact, and you can like look at a body and say, this is definitely a fem- female body, this is definitely a male body. At some point, I should probably do a like proper discourse analysis of this. Uh, I'm not there yet, but that's my yeah, general feeling, uh, having read the books quite a few times. I totally agree that you can see George's kind of uh, gender dynamic as reflecting modern struggles to define the uh, men versus women. There's the question of why why we uh, project back on that era this that sort of uh, approach, and maybe it's because do you think it's in part because we associate the Middle Ages with being like conservative or old-fashioned in some ways and that's what we and that's what also we associate rigid gender roles with now some like you know when we like you know i think about like the great john umber and he i think he's he's one of those yeah characters who's like well yeah women are made different they're just you know they have different priorities and and like is that george trying to show the great john is like a guy like you know your uncle or your grandfather in the present day do you think is that kind of the association he's going for do you think I mean, yeah, uh, partly I would say so, that people think that medieval times were more patriarchal and more uh, strict in many ways. So the way you see that in the modern world is by looking at like strict sex binaries and gender roles. And honestly, I I just don't think that George has read up on how people actually conceptualized (laughs) sex uh, in the medieval times. But also, like it sort of wouldn't make sense to write that but because a modern audience isn't aware of how that works. So if you want to, like George does in many ways, he wants to grapple with modern contemporary issues, but through a medieval lens, then you sort of have to use at least something vaguely modern for people to just understand what the heck you're saying. What about, I mean, so there's there's the borders between gender and how that concept has changed over time um what about uh what about sexuality itself what about being gay is is, do you think george's presentation of that or general presentations of that in this area is is accurate well no (laughs) um and that's um again i don't see a problem with that but it's not accurate because the way that we uh, see sexuality today uh, in the West at least that's fairly new historically speaking for instance one like relevant age or date to to think about is that before the 19th century homosexuality etc wasn't really seen as an identity as it is today homosexual sex was just seen as another form of like sinful sex in the eyes of the church like a bad act not an identity but with scientific disciplines like sexology and psychology, etc., gaining ground, scientists wanted to more like classify people and groups of people, and that led to labels like homosexuality. 
And at the same time, at that same historical time, people were gathering more in cities. There was an urbanization in Europe, uh, for instance, and in the US, uh, and people started uh, creating communities around identity. And uh, there's actually this really good quote uh, by French philosopher Michel Foucault, who, if anyone's uh, ever read Foucault, he always writes very complicated, but it's still a good quote. Um, And he says that homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy onto a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphrodism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary abrasion. The homosexual was now a species. So basically what he's saying in an unnecessarily complicated way <laughs> is that homosexuality went from being a temporary abrasion, like a specific act, to being a species, a type of person. I would say that uh, George writes gay characters as more like an identity, a type of person. Uh, than just a random sex act. Yeah, I think I agree. I think if you look at how the romance is presented between Renly and Loris, or the glimpses we get of John Connington's backstory and how things have been since he went into exile, that that does seem to be the case. And it does it does connect with what you were saying about gender and that we've shifted from the we've shifted from gender and sexuality as as things you achieve and more things you yeah you are and and tied to identity and that of course that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with being free of judgment because you you can you still get socially uh, punished for it and punished in a variety of ways for it but it, it has become yeah that that line about now being a species i think is is more relevant to how george is writing about uh these characters it's such a, a a modern perspective, and you know maybe the the giving him too much credit argument would be that he's trying to like get past those earlier conceptions and and try to show characters as they you know would be to our modern eyes. But that would be great. That would be making the mistake of thinking that our modern perspective is the true one, and we're just our job is to just see through the lies of the past. But of course, you know we we have our own layers of bullshit. Uh, here in the present, and those uh, come up in our stories. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one of the instances where he's sort of critiquing both a modern and maybe pre-modern lens is um, in Fire and Blood when they're talking about Lainor and if Rhaenyra should marry him, and uh, some dude on the small council is like, oh, but he might prefer to not eat fish, but if you bring him fish, then he'll still eat it, or something right. like that. I don't remember the exact quote. But I mean, those arguments, you still hear them, them today, that you should just choose to not be gay, or whatever. Anyway, so my point with all of this is that Gurm is a contemporary writer, uh, so he'll be influenced by contemporary views about sex, gender, and sexuality. So I think we can look at Aeswaf through a more contemporary lens and through contemporary scholarship as well. And I think one of the ways of doing that is uh, by acknowledging that in Aeswaf, as well as in our world, we often see different types of sexism, for instance, dif- affecting different people. And one way I really like of describe that describes this is from Dr. Julia Serrano, who talks about uh, what she calls traditional sexism and oppositional sexism. 
And she describes traditional sexism as something that, quote, functions to make femaleness and femininity appear subordinate to maleness and masculinity, end quote. And oppositional sexism as something that, quote, functions to legitimize fem- feminine expressions in women and delegitimize feminine expressions in men and vice versa for masculinity, end quote. So basically, in Aeswaf, women and femininity are oppressed, which we can see clearly with a lot of characters, but for instance, Sansa. Uh, but you can also see that there are norms that clearly dictate what men should do and what women should do and punish anyone who goes uh, outside of those borders. Those norms reinforce what you can- could call uh, linear gender, which is... The, the idea that society expects all parts of your sex slash gender to line up. And one way uh, of describing this uh, that I personally like come from, comes from Dr. Signer Bremer Gangnesjö, who puts it like, Liner gender explicates the heteronormative assumption that a person's genitals, general bodily materiality, legal sex, gender identity, gendered expression, sexual desires, ways of reproduction, parental status, kinship, and death point in the same direction throughout the life course, along a straight line from birth to death. So basically, what this means in the context of Aeswolf is that if someone's born with a vagina, they're assumed to be a woman, they're expected to wear dresses, learn how to embroider, keep to the home, marry a man, birth children, and then preferably die of old age, surrounded by children and grandchildren. And if you're a man, um, you're expected to be someone with a penis, uh, you should dress in armor, you should go off to fight wars, and also fuck a lot of women, and then get married to a woman, sire an heir, and if you don't do that as a man, you're not considered a quote-unquote real man. I think it's interesting to consider the intersection of those two dynamics, which are are not identical, but clearly seem to reinforce each other, where on the one hand, there's the elevation of uh, the male above the female and things that are associated with men are, are better and more worthier and more important. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily produce liberation for a given individual man because he also has these these roles and archetypes to fulfill, which produce him with more power and, and choice than an average woman in Westerosi society. But men who step outside that role can can be punished uh, quite swiftly and brutally, and so it's yeah that those kind of uh, those in- interlocking power systems. I feel like uh, Song of Ice and Fire does come from an author who certainly isn't an expert on those topics, but is is clearly aware of that. And I think you you see that like when um when Tywin says that really no one is free that like, you know, and you know, obviously, obviously Tywin is not exactly the word of God on things, but, (laughs) but that is, that is him, I think, reflecting a knowledge among or a consensus among people of his class that even the most powerful guy in Westeros still has a job to do and you better stick to that job. And I think that is, that is what you're describing is this, this kind of this consensus. And, uh, I, I think, yeah, a lot of what makes A Song of Ice and Fire interesting is when uh, George focuses on characters who are, are straying from that path in some way. So uh, what, what, what are some characters do you, in A Song of Ice and Fire that you really think exemplify these dynamics in interesting ways? 
I mean, I think Brienne is one of the most obvious ones. Um, I've written a lot about her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's probably the character that I personally identify with the most uh, in the story. And I think she very clearly illustrates the restrictiveness of uh, the gender binary, both in our world and in Eastwaf. And really, from the moment we first meet her, we see that she's more comfortable in nightly garb than clothes that, quote, suit her birth and sex, unquote, as Kat puts it in her sixth chapter in Clash. And Brienne is constantly seen as weird or freakish for not conforming to gender norms. And um, I think one of the most clear examples and horrible examples of this comes from her fifth uh, chapter in Feast, uh, where the lovely Randall Tarly says, quote, It is said that your father is a good man. If so, I pity him. Some men are blessed with sons, some with daughters, no man deserves to be cursed with such as you. Yeah, oh, it's a that's such a such a brutal moment where, and it, it's such an insightful moment into the psychology of a guy like Randall Tarley, where he thinks he doesn't think he hates women because he's saying some men are blessed with sons, some with daughters. So to his mind, that's him like covering his bases and saying it would be no, it would be wonderful if your father had an actual daughter, but that's not what you are and that, that i think that uh, few maybe not everyone is as willing to say it out loud like that as he is but that does seem to be the perspective a lot of people in brienne's class have on her yeah there's constantly this that either you should be a proper lady or you should be a knight but you can't be a knight or a lord or whatever because you have the wrong body parts uh-huh. you cannot be that um, and therefore, you're a failure, you're a freak, you're monstrous. So, yeah, that's what makes her interesting to analyze, but also probably, I'd say, quite uh, relatable to a lot of people, including myself. I think anyone who's having to, anyone who's had to spend a lot of their time dealing with other people being uncomfortable about them or near them, I think can relate to that Brienne constantly having to do that. And sometimes it manifests as outright danger to her person, and sometimes it manifests as just, like, endless snark she's going to have to deal with. And, you know, she doesn't always know what's going to become one or the other. And uh, part of Jamie's changing perspective is he realizes, he starts to intuit that Brienne has good reason to react to him the way she does. Nothing to do with even Jamie's specific crimes, but that's just that she's used to guys who talk like this and it's often worse than just jokes so that that uh and that i think that empathy is supposed to cue i think the reader to a certain extent because brienne's not a pov yet at that point so i think i think george does a good job of using jamie to kind of start to lead the reader towards brienne before she then she of course she gets her own chapters and feast which uh which are terrific where do you think he's drawing from when he writes Brienne? Who do you think he has in mind when, when he sat down to, to come up with Brienne Tarth? I can see a few different influences. Uh, I remember that when Girls Gone Canon did their episodes on the Jamie chapters, Eliana brought up uh, some parallels to Roman de Silence. I probably butchered that pronunciation. Sorry, any French speakers. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's an actually medieval story that tell that from the medieval times 
which is about a person who is assigned female at birth, but is raised as a knight and then lives as a knight. Which is also, like, proof of a sort that people like this actually existed uh, during that historical period. But, but I also think another interesting parallel is between Brienne and Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And some of the parallels are, I mean, quite obvious. For instance, there are the names Brienne of Tarf, Joan of Arc, the Maid of Tarf, the Maid of Orleans. But they are also both, you know, warrior maids. What I find the most interesting about them is how they're both treated because of their gender nonconformity. And I don't think everyone knows this, but Joan of Arc was actually executed because of her quote-unquote cross-dressing. She was wanted by both the English crown and the church for a myriad of reasons, uh, including her armed resistance and because the church accused her of witchcraft. But what she was actually condemned of and ultimately executed for was because she insisted on wearing men's clothing. Uh, quote-unquote men's clothing. Uh, so her trans- transgression of this social boundary and her insistence on carrying on doing it, even if after the church was like, no, you shouldn't do that. That has made some modern historians suggest that she, had she lived today, she might have uh, identified as trans, for instance. To quote literary scholar Dr. Gabriel Bukowski on this, some would debate passionately over whether or not Joan of Arc was transgender in the same way that modern trans men in the military understand themselves to be. For many, this is because Joan is often held up as evidence that women can do a man's job. On the other hand, Joan regularly self-identifies as a maid. But Joan spoke very carefully in the trial. Joan's actions and carefully chosen words make it debatable whether Joan, if alive today, might identify as trans or perhaps even non-binary. But that is complicated enough to be the subject of his own article. It is enough to say for now that Joan may not have had much liberty to speak candidly about gender or identity. The whole focus on the trial was trying to catch Joan making an unorthodox or heretical claim. Whether or not you accept that Joan of Arc might have been trans, it is clear that transphobia was central to Joan's trial. The argument being made by the English court was, essentially, that a person cannot and should not be transgender. Joan refused to confirm all the English transphobic biases. Joan was ultimately killed on these grounds. This suggests that whether or not modern historians call Joan of Arc transgender, it seems as though the medieval court considered Joan transgender enough to die for it. Unquote. So yeah, I think that uh, quotation sums up how I think about Brienne too. Regardless of how she actually identifies, she's met by what I would call transphobia because uh, of her gender nonconformity. It's a very interesting dynamic to consider that we i mean because i think there might be an intuitive insistence that someone identifies themselves in a way and then society either condemns or accepts them and that's the way the relationship works but the way you you framed that i think gets at the reality that uh, a person's identity first of all they they might not be ever ever under the the kind of circumstances where they can speak candidly about it so we have to stop expecting that necessarily of people and also that 
something inchoate can provoke just as much fear or if even more fear than someone who comes out with like a clear declaration of who they are and why they are that way. And so the the clarity can come first in the response. And I think that's that's interesting and in that I think that is that is clear with with Brienne herself who who I think is it's it's just so it's so sad that Brienne has a much less clear idea of herself than everyone else seems to. Everyone else seems to think I understand exactly what's wrong with her. And you know, once we get to Brienne's own POV, there's there's such conflict, and so she she really provokes that that anxiety and that that fear that I guess that she might be the tip of the spear that she might allow other people to think that way, and that yeah that seems to have been have been a, a part of the reaction to Joan of Arc too that there was that that path you were talking about where everything. Everything about a person's life is supposed to link together and lead like an arrowhead straight to death. And you're the same person the whole way. And Brienne demonstrates that might not be the case. Yeah, there's a lot of things written about exactly what the thing um, you're talking about. How trans people or gender non-conforming people evoke that fear in others because they suggest that there's another way to live. There is a really uh, influential uh, scholar called Susan Stryker who's written a lot about that, and I love her work. And uh, in an article she wrote in ninety four, so nineteen ninety four, so that was you know a while back, uh, just for the people who think trans is a new trend or whatever. She w- writes about how she thinks that one of the reasons that trans people receive a lot of harassment in our current times um, is because just they make people question what they think is natural what they think is normal what they think is the way things are supposed to be and because they provoke that questioning of both your surroundings your society and perhaps even yourself people react with fear because it's something unknown it's something different and i think that's what you can see with brianne too regardless of how she personally identifies she makes people question those norms that is that would which is considered natural um and pe- people react with fear and violence and hatred uh, which you can see throughout her arc how how do you think Bri- what sense do you get about Brienne in terms of how she uh thinks about gender i mean how do you how do you think she identifies if she was put to that question it's a really good question i've thought about that a lot, uh, especially since I've been writing so much about her. Uh, and I often get that question from people when I say that, you know, I think she's a victim of transphobia. People are like, oh, but you, so you say she's trans? And I'm not sure, honestly. I think that, I mean, obviously terms like trans or non-binary or genderqueer didn't exist in medieval times, but those kinds of people still existed, even if they didn't have those words for it. I think that Brienne doesn't necessarily see herself as a woman, uh, based on uh, how she talks about her gender uh, in the story, but I don't think she sees herself as a man either. There are those instances when she almost refers to herself as her father's son, for instance. But she also, there's also this really heartbreaking quote that I love and hate because it's so heartbreaking uh, from her sixth chapter in Feast where she 
she's on the quiet aisle uh, and she's talking about her father um, and how she feels like uh, she has failed him. And she says, A daughter, Brienne's eyes filled with tears. He deserves that. A daughter who could sing to him and grace his hall and bear him grandsons. He deserves a son too, a strong and gallant son to bring honor to his name. Galadan drowned when I was four and he was eight though, and Alysanne and Arianne died still in the cradle. I am the only child the gods let him keep, the freakish one, not fit to be a son or a daughter. And, I mean, honestly, as some, someone who would, who describes myself as genderqueer, that's extremely relate- relatable, that part of feeling like you're not fit to be man or woman, son or daughter. So I would describe Brienne's gender as something sort of liminal between male and women, but I would I I'm in the end I'm not comfortable assigning a certain gender identity to her, uh, and I think you can read her in a lot of different ways, but I think the way she inhabits this liminal space between genders is central to both her own identity and especially to how other people interact with her, like we talked about. Absolutely. Even the people who don't react with outright disgust, like Randall Tarley, it it colors how Catelyn talks about her and thinks about her. And even as Catelyn accepts Brienne as her sworn sword, she has to very much compartmentalize to be able to do so because she's thinking to herself, really, this is Ned's job. And if if society was working like it's supposed to, why are all my men dying? Nope, can't think about that. Got to shove that away. And that Brienne has provoked these these anxious thoughts, which were under the surface, but her very presence brings them out. And yeah, talking about Brienne's chapters in Feast, one of the interesting things about Feast is how it kind of shook out in terms of publishing. This wasn't really the intent, but it features a, a very high percentage of women as POV characters and women who have very different relationships to their gender. And you see that with like Ariane Martel and Asha Greyjoy, but the, the main ones, of course, are, are, are Brienne and Cersei. So if you, if you, look, if you look at those two characters side by side as they end up being a lot in Feast. What, what, how do you think George handles uh, gender and sexuality with those two characters? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting comparison, especially because a lot of the time when you hear people comparing Cersei and Brienne, it's, you know, in regards to their relationship to Jaime. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you a Yaisi shipper or a Brainy shipper? Right, the third leg of the triangle. <laughs> that's how it's usually talked yes. about. Yep. Uh, exactly. Uh, but I think if you like look at their gender uh, and how they handle that, um, that's, per- in my opinion, more interesting uh, than looking at them just compared to Jamie. I've talked to uh, Rohan, who I know listens to this podcast, uh, Cyril Woodcock on Twitter is her at. I've talked to Rohan a lot about this and uh, her analysis uh, of Cersei from a feminist and psychological perspective has really changed how I see Cersei. Uh, and we have had a lot of discussions about how Brienne and Cersei are both uncomfortable with the restraints of, from womanhood that they are assigned. Um, they're assigned this womanhood but they're really uncomfortable with the restraints and um, but they express this discomfort very differently. Uh, Brienne, like I said, she almost calls herself her father's son several times, uh, but she thinks that she's not fit to be a son. 
uh, while Cersei in her first feast chapter she thinks that uh, she's the only true son that Tywin ever had. Cersei wishes she could be the one wearing mail instead of skirts, like she says in Aegot to Robert. Um, but her discomfort with womanhood and experience of the patriarchy has led her to channel that into rage and hatred to those around her, instead of like trying to fix uh, <laughs> or fight the restrictive system or anything like that. So as a contrast, I think that Brienne, uh, she feels sad about the obstacles she encounters and she tries to live her life authentically, but she more turns that sadness inward uh, with the exception of beating the hell out of Red Ronnet, uh, which he deserves. <laughs> but yeah, so Cersei more turns that outward and Brienne more inward, I would say. Um but of course, Cersei also displays a lot of uh, internalized misogyny that Brienne doesn't really. Um, but I don't think that's very surprising considering that Cersei grew up with Tywin as a dad. Yeah, that's a great point. And that is that is one of the striking things about Cersei's character is her her feelings about other women and what exactly she thinks the injustice of her life is. Because as she explains it to Sansa, and then as we get access to her POV chapters, Cersei believes that she is, like, that Cersei basically believes that all other women deserve their lot, and that she is the one who ought to have been allowed into in, into the leadership cast, kind of by virtue of being Tywin's uh, a, a proper child, and so much of that does feel like she has taken in the, the loathing she sensed at a visceral level when she was a kid, when Jamie started getting stuff and she didn't and she she wasn't able to reject that because that that loathing was coming from the people she wanted to be like and the people she wanted to join and her own family so she couldn't she f- couldn't f- feel like she, I mean she felt like she couldn't wholly reject it so instead she just passed it on to every other woman on the planet and then and then kept kept help herself alive to to be be part of the club, whereas yeah, Brienne, I, I I like what you said about the kind of the sadness turning inward because it's 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 more sadness for her and for Cersei, it's anger, and you know that's that maybe that that's overly reductive, but those kind of seem seem to be their kind of emotional keys when when dealing with uh, the the roles they've been forced to fit into. But yeah, as you say, a lot of this is about Tywin. Tywin has very specific uh, ideas about gender, and it became it became his way or the highway after uh, his wife died, after Joanna died. And that affected all the Lannister kids in different ways. So we've talked about Cersei. How do you how do you think uh, T- uh, George approaches uh, gender and sexuality when it comes to Tyrion? I think uh, Tyrion is a really interesting person to analyze from that perspective because I think with him we see how gender interacts with other social categories, like disability, for instance. Uh, we see that with some other characters too, like Penny, Doran, Bran, and Jaime after he loses his hand. But Tyrion, as well as many of these other disabled male characters, aren't seen as real men because of their disability. And Tyrion really has a lot of interesting passages about masculinity in the books. Uh, for instance, there's this one passage uh, in Tyrion 2 in Clash when he talks to Varys and he says that People have called me a half-man too, yet I think the gods have been kinder to me. I am small, my legs are twisted, and women do not look upon me with any great yearning. Yet I am still a man. 
She is not the first to grace my bed, and one day I may take a wife and sire a son. If the gods are good, he lo look like his uncle and think like his father. You have no such hope to sustain you. Dwarves are the ape of the gods, but men make eunuchs. So I think that's a really clear example of how Tyrion thinks uh, a man should be like. You have to be physically able, but you also have to have heterosexual sex and father children. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating conversation because it's it's Tyrion reassuring himself that at least he's better off than Varys, and that's that's something Tyrion does a lot is look around for someone who's worse off because that'll that's the only way he can, you know, just not want it to curl into a corner and weep about his life. Like you know, this is the how he basically sustains himself. And that it specifically impacts his relationship to Jamie. You know, as as you said, he'll he'll look like his uncle. Jamie was always kind of this this shining star, what a Lannister man should look like. That 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 Tyrion uh, was was never able to live up to, and that he it's 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 so important to him that he's still able to have sex, and that uh, I think he obviously just enjoys sex in and of itself. But it's just it's like important for his for his gender identity that he's able to still perform masculinity in this one area when he, he can't do it in, in many others. Yeah, exactly. Like I talked about that idea of blind and gender before, and he can almost follow that correct path, the straight path for life. Um, and he, he, he deviates a bit from it because he can't do the fighting stuff and all of that, but well, he can, but not in the Jamie way. But it's he's still like close enough to it, so he feels like he's mostly a man at least, while he thinks that Varys is, isn't at all because he lacks the manhood part of it all. And that yeah, that but men make eunuchs. He said like in some ways he he feels like well I I'm the way I am because the the, the universe sucks. Like you know just the the gods are responsible for me. But you know you Varys you could have been something else. And, and the the folly of men made you what you are, and it's it's just Tyr Tyrion just trying to find uh, a narrative that he can he can stick to, and he does that with Jon Snow too, when he says, "My mind is my weapon," and you realize like this is something he's rehearsed over and over again as a mm -hmm. way to justify his own existence to himself, and as a way to explain how he can function within House Lannister and be part of the team, and he just has to gradually realize that they're. They're they're not going to let him in. Even at the same time, as he tells himself, if, if he'd been born, you know, lesser than a Lannister, there's a good chance he wouldn't have survived infancy. Like being being Tywin's son saved him, even as as horrible as Tywin is to him, and that's what a what a horrible position that is to be. Yeah, exactly. I think it's so interesting to consider how he relates to his class status because sometimes he's aware of it right. and sometimes he's really not aware of it. Very true, as it's convenient. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you can you can really see that in dance too when he has to like realize Penny's situation and realize how her both her class status and her gender impacts how her disability impacts her sort of because there's the there's a lot of threats of sexual violence for instance towards penny and i think it's and Tyrion like sort of realizes that that's a problem for her 
but then he sort of doesn't realize it at the same time and he's yeah he's just spending that whole time with Penny trying to figure out both her and him and how like basically he's trying to figure out intersectionality but right. failing <laughs> yeah that's what the, that's what i was thinking that's what comes up with with Tyrion and these issues because it's like it's like with um with Chet the Storm of Swords prologue guy where he him his upbringing was as pretty much the bottom of the economic ladder as you can possibly be like his not only was his dad a peasant but he didn't even have any land to work like they just had to walk into the pond get covered with leeches walk back out and sell those leeches like that that was it in terms of subsistence and chet's way of of dealing with that was asserting extremely violent power in the one arena he felt like he could still be in charge which is sex and that that has carried through to the present day where you know, he wants to flee the Night's Watch, and I get why he wants to flee the Night's Watch, because they're stuck beyond the wall and are all about to die. But then his future, his planned future for his life is, I'm going to set myself up like Craster. That seems like a good idea. So it's 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 like he's learned nothing from his from the the bullshit he has had to take. And that, that kind of happens with Tyrion, too, with it. You see in that quote where it's like, women do not look upon me with any great yearning. And his his that, like for him, that kind of stings more than anything else. So he that that he he lashes out in that regard, and yeah, you see that. I think all through his story, I think uh, in in Clash, and then all, yeah, all the way through to Dance. Even when he's after he's uh, spiraling out, it still still comes up. Yeah, right. Because he also has that thing when he feels threatened, or he feels his masculinity is threatened, or whatever. Then he lashes out violently and often against women. I mean, there's where with Shay or with the sex worker slash sex slave uh, that he rapes, and just he's. His way of getting some sort of confidence back is by exerting violence uh, against other people, specifically women often. And it's it's the and it's, this is where I think it is similar to Cersei in that they've seen what a raw deal it is to not be in charge, um, and they've seen that because they're so close to the people who are in charge. And the conclusion they could reach is. Isn't this a stupid way to set things up? But the conclusion they actually reach is, I got to find somewhere else I can be in charge. You said it doesn't live up to the the Jamie model of a knight, you know. I mean, there are other options for men in Westeros. There are other institutions that you can be part of. But even then, like you go out to like the Citadel, for example, which like you know thinks of itself as as the the more the rational and smart and ahead of the curve. There's that great bit. Where Varus says, like, uh, the Citadel considered a couple of poor people, and then having satisfied themselves that they're very progressive, they're sending the guy who's a nobleman. Which I just thought is like, yeah, that's perfect, like, academic self-patting on the back. And that's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's. I mean, so so even there, you, you still see those gender roles. Even there, you see that women aren't uh, officially allowed in, but the, there is... There is a, a one character in the story who does does appear to be a woman in the Citadel, or or might be the case. The character we we are introduced to as as Alaris, uh, uh in the the Feast for Crows prologue. And this pro- you know, that's that's probably all there is to him. There's 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 n- nothing yeah. interesting going on there at all. No, 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 of course not. Of course not. <laughs> it's not like Alaris backwards is Sorella. You don't not, say. No. I've never heard this before. What a what a theory. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so, I mean, I accept that as canon, that Alaris <laughs> the Sphinx is Sarah Lassand, child of Oberyn. Agreed. I think most people do that, mm-hmm. if they're not... Yeah, not uh, a lot of dispute well, on that one, I think. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's lots of evidence, there's the name thing, there's, um, they have the same ethnicity, uh, Alaris and Sorella are described as Dornish and Summer Islander. And Alaris seems to be highly born, uh, which fits. And uh, there's also this really interesting passage where Ariane thinks that how Sorella was always butting in where she didn't belong. <laughs> sure. Which I think is so interesting if you <laughs> consider Alaris to be Sorella. Right, right, exactly. She's still doing that. That's That's perfect. What I, from like my perspective, <laughs> think is interesting with Sorella Alaris is that I think most people just think that, oh, Sorella wants to get into the Citadel, uh, either for just studying reasons or because of some plan or whatever. Obviously, to do that, Sorella has to pass as man. That could be the case, uh, but I, I just want to like caution a bit against that because uh, he's when people have been studying history, they have all uh, often looked at similar cases and assumed the same thing. Like, okay, a woman wants to get into the military. The military doesn't allow women. She dresses up as a man. And there's lots of those instances historically uh, that has used, as people have just assumed that to be the case. But like we were talking about earlier, we, don't, we don't, often don't have accounts from the exact people doing the thing we have other people describing them doing the thing so it's hard both like in this case we don't have Alaris Sorella's point of view or like historically we don't have the actual authentic thoughts of people so I think with Alaris Sorella you I think we should at least consider that maybe they also feel more comfortable living as a man it can be both a practical decision to get into the Citadel and that they just made this, also made this because of their gender identity. And uh, there's this really good quote uh, that I uh, keep tweeting from time to time when I think the discourse is bad, which is from uh, Leslie Feinberg from her book uh, called Transgender Warriors. Uh, and this book is from 1996. And uh, uh, the quote says, No wonder you've passed as a man. This is such an anti-woman society, a lesbian friend told me. To her, females passing as males are simply trying to escape women's oppression. Period. She believes that once true equality is achieved in society, humankind will be genderless. I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't predict human behavior in the distant future. But I know what she's thinking. If we can build a more just society, people like me will cease to exist. She assumes that I am simply a product of oppression. Yee, thanks so much. (laughs) So yeah, basically, maybe don't be too quick to reduce people to just being a product of oppression. I think you could read Sorella or Lyris as trans or non-binary, even if they also want to study at the Citadel. So I think we should just kind of be open to the possibility of there being more to it than just a practical decision. I agree. I think that 
dovetails with what we see of her, where uh, how how kind of comfortable she seems in her own skin. She doesn't strike me as someone who's who's spying. I never quite bought bought the, bought those theories that she's there for Duran Martel. I think yeah, there's that line about her being curious about everyone who lives there when when Ariana's describing when they when they visited the place in Dorne. And there's yeah, there's that that intellectual curiosity, but also that that uh, fearlessness about your identity that I do think she may have picked up on from her dad. I mean, you know, obviously a lot of this is, is, is supposition, but, uh, you know, Oberyn in his, Oberyn in his own way challenged certain gender norms, although being a prince of Dorne and being sexy and violent and dangerous certainly didn't, <laughs> didn't, uh, it, you know, helped, helped smooth that over. You know, but, you know, Oberyn had it, had it easy in certain regards, but, but uh, a Sorella may have, taken from that the idea that you you that gender can be more fluid than someone dealing with Brienne's situation or Cersei's situation and um uh and that uh, yeah unfortunately yeah the the citadel they might be might be brainier than the likes of Randall Tarley you know he has his scorn for the maesters with their chains but ironically they might you know they're not probably too far off from him in terms of rigid views of gender so there's yeah. yeah there is there's potential for trouble there if if uh, if she gets unmasked. Yeah, and I do wonder about that because just like looking at either our world or historically, things usually don't go that well when people are revealed in such a fashion when it's fi- when people find out what someone's true sex really is. Um, that usually doesn't end well. Uh, well, I mean it can obviously, but. I think that in this sort of situation, it probably wouldn't. I mean, if you just look at in-story examples, you have Brave Blen- Danny Flint, uh, who's a similar example, I think. Um, and But I do also wonder if it will be worse for Sorella, because they're black. Um, and, I mean, if you look at just in-story, Leo Tyrell is already there being extremely racist <laughs> towards uh, Alaris. Uh, and then if you add some sort of sexism, transphobia onto that, can't really see that ending well. And just if you look at, at our world, hate crimes against trans and non- gender non-conforming people, black people and people of color are overrepresented in those crimes, especially in violent cl- crimes like murder. So I do worry about what will happen to Sorella if people do find out. The threat from Lazy Leo is made very plain, and I can only imagine that would get worse. I can. It's a strange thing to hope for, but I, I hope I hope Euron removes the threat. You know, I hope I hope everything <laughs> collapsing in Old Town uh, takes away the the people that would go after her, and I hope she is one of those uh, who escapes with Sam. Uh, if, if if things go, go go poorly in Old Town, but as you say, yeah, brave Danny Flint in the backstory is uh, is a very grim reminder, and uh, and I think if if Liana, I think had um, had been exposed as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, I think she would have been in huge trouble in large part because of course the Mad King is the Mad King, but also because she was you know specifically cosplaying as a knight and like you know she pitched her voice low for a reason when she was doing that. Because she didn't want to get found out uh, as as a woman dressing up in knight's armor, and she embarrassed those those other men, which is what people don't like about Brienne too. Not just that she performs as a knight, but that she's good at it, which like kind of hints that maybe all these roles shouldn't be as rigid as they are. So you have to stamp down on that real quick. So 
Do you think it's fair to say that Liana was would probably have been in for similar trouble in that regard? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, what you said there reminded me of something I read uh, from uh, a scholar called Jack Halberstam once, uh, and he wrote about uh, the murder of uh, Brendan F- Tina, if anyone has heard about that. And the way that Halberstam describes that is because the people around Brandon, Brandon was a trans man in uh, the United States, uh, and he got violently raped and murdered. Uh, and the way that Halberstam writes about that is because people in the town that he lived essentially thought he was too good at being a man. Uh, he like all the girls wanted him. He was just too perfect, uh, and the the men uh, couldn't handle that. So they thought that. Uh, they had to essentially reduce him back to the woman they thought wrongly that he was, and that they did that through enforced heterosexuality, uh, through rape and then murder. Um, and I think that's something you see a lot with uh, Brienne constantly being threatened with sexual assault. Uh, I think uh, you obviously see that with Brave Danny Flint, uh, and I think that's something that could happen to someone like Liana too especially if it was Ares who found out uh, we know he has a history of sexual violence and he was already mad about someone tricking him being the knight of the laughing crew and if he then found out it was a woman dressing up as a knight I think things would go even worse and something we see in A Song of Ice and Fire is how how the image of chivalry can turn into that kind of horror on the the flip of a coin. Like, you know, she's lucky it was Rhaegar who found her, and Rhaegar, you know, with his harp and his perfect Prince Byron hair, and, you know, (laughs) his at least somewhat sympathetic worldview compared to his father. But, uh, you know, those same thing with Brienne. Like, you know, like the the guys making the wager and Hyle Hunt's later trying to, like, frame it in semi-romantic terms. Like, that's kind of how they're thinking about it. And, yeah, I think that's that's something interesting George pokes at is is the, the chivalric ideal and how often it it is not that different from the wildlings, you know, stealing women as they're, as they're you know, talked about with their, with their raiding. And, like, well, yeah, but, you know, is, is Westerosi feudal culture that different? It might just be gussied up in, in, in harps and flowers. Yeah, there's that Sander quote about a knight being for uh, for killing, just he has a, a ribbon on his sword or whatever it is. Same right. Thing. Yeah, exactly. That's a good yeah, that we're we are we are lying to ourselves about the ways we really handle gender and sexuality. And that's something that, as you say, we're saying earlier might be a, a modern writer's perspective. Uh in, in that sense and something i think is interesting about sorella in that regard especially if she does survive is that she might be uh, a character george explores these issues with in later books just because we've only met her a couple times there's the, all these mysteries about her george can kind of fill in her identity and backstory any way he wants as opposed to someone like Tyrion, who's kind of baked into the cake at this point because we know a lot about him so that kind of leads me to the question of what you know, it's been it's been years since the previous book. What do you, how do you think uh, George might write about uh, gender and sexuality and the story that's left to come? 
I'm honestly not sure. Uh, I was actually talking about this with some of the lovely people of the Westerosi Bar Association Slack just the other day. And we did wonder if uh, George would be more aware of gen- issues of gender sexu- and sexuality now. I, I think he as a person is more aware. I'm not sure how that will reflect in the books. But also I... I do honestly think he does a decent job of writing about queer characters, even if it's like kind of an accident, maybe. Um, so, I mean, there are so many characters that trouble and question uh, gender and sexuality norms in interesting ways, like we've talked about that for a fair bit uh, by this point. And I, I don't think that George thought of them as being trans or being non-binary, but those themes are still there. So maybe he'll be more aware of it, but I'm honestly not sure how how he, how exactly that will change his writing. Yeah, no, that's I think that's right because it doesn't it just doesn't manifest as one to one, obviously, like that. Like it's 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 good to expand your worldview and to take in other perspectives, but you know that doesn't you know that doesn't necessarily mean when you sit down to write that that's going to lead to a brilliant burst of inspiration. Like that, you know, you're, you're, George still is dealing with the writer's block he's been dealing with forever. So I, I think it's interesting to consider how the how he's evolved over time and how that that might manifest. But um, as as you say, it's it's part of the I think part of the power of, of good storytelling is is to hint at stuff you didn't necessarily intend and op- open room for for questions and interpretations and. Um, that's I think part of writing great characters is is not is not defining everything down to the to the slightest detail because then you 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 leave your story room to grow and you leave yourself room to grow, and uh, maybe George has left you know you could definitely say that George R. R. Martin has left himself too much room to grow, but I think it's <laughs> it's 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 definitely good in in some respects. Um, so uh, one one last question before we uh, wrap up here, moving away from a song of ice and fire. Uh, how do you think uh, Game of Thrones, the show, handled uh, gender and sexuality? Not a not a minefield of a question at all. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like by this point I've partially suppressed Game of Thrones, uh, so I'm uh, uh, I'm not that sure on the details, but I feel like. Um, Game of Thrones was generally more straightforward when it came to like queer sexuality, but then skipped a lot of the interesting nuances when it comes to gender and queer and gender. Yeah, I think that's like generally my approach. How I how I remember the parts I didn't suppress all the way down. Oh, I'm I'm thinking of this. Uh, you know, spe- specific characters. Obviously, we didn't have John Connington. But um, what about uh, what about Loras Terrell? Since he's a, a gay character in the book, they they also had in the show. I'm not a big fan of what they did with Loras in the show. Honestly, I feel like they turned his sexuality into something that was just about sex, and kind of fell into the stereotype of making gay gay men super promiscuous. Because you know, I mean, that's. Sex is obviously one part of sexuality, but queer desires can also just be romantic, intimate, erotic, without being, you know, what they did on the show, um, <laughs> which was just sex. 
essentially. Um, and I, I especially feel that when they have Loras continuing to sleeping around with people after Renly dies, because in the books you have that wonderful, sad, teenage, dramatic <laughs> quote right. about when the sun set, no candle can replace it. And I mean, in, in the show, he sure seems to get over Renly really quickly and starts sleeping around with people. I mean, good for him, but I do feel like that's a bit more of a stereotype. Agreed. It's It becomes a punchline. And yeah, I love that line from Loris in the books. It's it's such a great, tragic, romantic line. And I think, you know, I don't think there was... There just wasn't a lo- much genuine eroticism on Game of Thrones. I think the, the, the sex scenes often even weren't really trying to be. Often were kind of more just about having them but uh, you know i think that 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 stands out i think very clearly in loris's case because it's it's such a contrast uh, to his character in the books but what about uh, uh brienne herself what about your favorite how do you think the show handled her in this regard i mean i do love some parts of her story don't get me wrong i mean a knight of the seven kingdoms the knighting part amazing beautiful but i do think that they kind of cut away some of the nuances and I mean I think they reduce her to just a woman who wants to fight and isn't allowed because of gender norms in a lot of ways and you miss a lot of the deeper sort of questioning of gender that you get in books both with herself and other people yeah questioning her gender there's just much more nuances in the books and in the show at least my interpretation of it, is that she's more just a badass woman who happens to live in a patriarchal society. Yeah, that sounds about right. And we've seen like a million other female heroines like this, from like Eowyn going forward. And um, I mean, I've come across people online who have argued that if Brienne was born today in our world, she would be fine, because women are now allowed into the military. So no harassment, no internal conflict, nothing. Um, and I just, I deeply disagree with that when it comes to the books. But I think it sort of works for Bianin show, because there is not this deeper struggle with gender in the show. I feel I feel like they skip that. But with, uh, with in the show, it's more just she wants to fight and she wants to wear men's clothing. Uh, and because we're coming from a contemporary perspective, we think, oh, totally fine. And you don't get that deeper part of it that, that I feel like are in the books. Uh, so I feel like if you have, if you put someone with in, sort of internal gender conflict that Brienne has in the books, if you put that person into our world, they would still struggle and they would still, f- yeah, face plenty of harassment because of that. And I don't think that's the Brienne that they portray in the show. What it, what the Brienne adaptation and the Loras adaptation have in common, I think, is this kind of discomfort with frailty and a need to for Loras to kind of be a joke and for Brienne to for her obstacles to be kind of punchable, you know, for you know, for 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 Brienne to um, to not have those more kind of. Uh, direct struggles and uncertainties and uh much much more straight ahead in terms of what's restricting her and i think there's there's still yeah i think there's still so many great moments with her and I think Gwendolyn christie is great 
but it is there is i think you, you said it right i think there was something specific and more unique to her character in the books that i think uh that doesn't doesn't uh, come quite through there um and i think that is uh, gonna wrap us up i think for this week so uh thank you again lo so much for coming on i was really looking forward to it Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, super fun to talk about all of this with you. So uh, tell people where they can uh, find your work. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at LoadLinks with underscores between all the words. And you can find my blog at LoadLinks.wordpress.com. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for listening, folks. Uh, as always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you find us. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week.